Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. given a lecture as part of our Generous Orthodoxy series, and um, uh, we're going to engage in conversation with you about some of the ideas you've been um, spreading about, the art of hope, this, this theme you've been speaking about tonight. But we've also got um, two other conversation partners as well. It's great to have Ben, Ben Quash, uh, with us as well. Ben's been on a GodPod recording before, just a few, little, um, a few months ago, but Ben is the uh, Professor of Christianity and the Arts at King's College London, and um, is a good friend, so Ben, thanks for joining us tonight. And also we have Sarah Schumacher who was our um, tutor in theology and the arts here at St. Melitus College as well. That's great. So, um, if, I, if I could just begin with, um, with a question. I suppose it, my question is really just trying to relate what you've been sharing with us tonight and your engagement with um, uh, theology and the arts with, with some of your kind of earlier work that, that people mm. will be familiar mm. with. I remember I think one of the first books I read of yours was um, that little book called, uh, called Thinking in Tongues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A kind of, you know, Pentecostal approach to, to, to philosophy, which is a very uh, interesting um, thing. And then, of course, ongoing from that, you've done this sort of cultural liturgies work. And I suppose my reflection on, on if there's a theme that sort of holds all this together is the sense that, um, that uh, we relate to God not just or even not primarily through our intellectual, rational minds. I guess the... The idea of sort of that sort of Pentecostal approach to philosophy was saying, actually, no, no, God addresses us in a different register, uh, you know, through our hearts, through experience. And I guess the, the cultural liturgies material was about desire, about yeah. longing, about the ways in which those are often more primary uh, than our sort of rational processes in, in determining behavior. And therefore, the kind of education, the shaping of desire becomes very important. And I suspect this, this I wonder whether this engagement with the arts is also part of that same strand it's actually saying that yes yes god speaks to us and we relate to god not just in this purely rational intellectual way but actually through visual through emotional through through um tactile ways is that is that a right reading? yeah absolutely no you you nailed it you 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 saw it you see the thread uh, um uh, some by the way sometimes i say the thinking in tongues book the pentecostal book is sort of volume 1.5 of the cultural liturgies trilogy yeah. Because you're right, it's exactly the shared intuition here. And it's, and it's actually a fun way, in the spirit of generous orthodoxy, it's actually a really provocative way to set up conversations between Pentecostal charismatic traditions and let's, let's call it Catholic or sacramental traditions, to say that actually what they both share in common is a deep set of convictions that God is meeting us as more than brains on a stick. Right, like that, that this isn't just about the propositional dissemination of information from the pulpit, uh, but that God is meeting us as creatures with bodies, with senses, uh, with hearts, with hungers, with longings and desires, and also as narrative creatures, right? That that's what's happening in sanctification is the spirit is in many ways re-narrating who we are which is then why poetry, film... So, so one of the ways I tried to work it out in the Cultural Liturgies trilogy is, on the one hand, I'm a philosopher, I'm trying to make an argument, I quote Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty and things, but it's 
equally integral that I engage with novels, short stories, films, uh, um, music, because I actually think, in a way, those enact, quote unquote, the arguments. Uh, in, in the same way that I think receiving uh, communion is a, is a communication of grace to me um, that I can't ever fully articulate propositionally. So yeah, it's, it, it grows out of this conviction that the kinds of creatures God has made us to be are multifaceted. And um, too much modern Christianity sort of got locked into fixating on the intellect. I'm very pro-intellect. I'm all, I'm all for the intellect. I, I get paid to think. But uh, I actually think I've come to the conclusion that we are so much more than thinking. And I, I think that's, I think the mystical traditions have always appreciated that, uh, absolutely. Presumably that lies behind your interest in Augustine. Very, yeah, yeah, very much. Who I also think has a different model of, of what the human person is. You know, it's interesting. I don't know what your experience is uh, in the UK, but interestingly, I remember I, I was sort of a pilgrim to the Pentecostal tradition and through the Pentecostal tradition. And I remember being surprised that like these Pentecostal churches um, all had sort of arts ministries. Now, it was, it, they, they weren't you know, staging stuff in the Smithsonian, but, but there was still this, it really came out of an intuition that God wants to meet us in ways that are, that are targeting the imagination and not just the intellect. And I, I think a lot of people who don't know anything about Pentecostalism would be surprised to realize that. And, and in Thinking in Tongues, I argue that, I, I think in some ways the heart, at the heart of Pentecostalism is a certain kind of holy surrealism. Uh, which then makes you interested in certain kinds of artistic possibilities. Jamie, thank you so much for this evening. Um, I wanted to pick up something that you said in your lecture and just ask you a little bit more about it. So you mentioned that the mystery of sacramentality is underneath the Christian aesthetic um, and that idea that in the incarnation is the goodness of matter and that becoming then the foundation for thinking about, um, about art. And I was interested to know when that's extended to art, do you think there's a limit of art as sacramental, because art can be a sign, but can also be an anti-sign. Sure. So it can point towards and it can point away from. So I was, I was interested to know when you extend it into that realm, um, are there limitations? But also, is there a particular posture required for the viewer or the listener to be able to receive that? Mm. So do we, because um, art may have that potential, but do we bring something as the receiver of the gift? Yeah, great. Great question. So on the first one, and, and um, I feel like I could learn a lot from you about this, because I always get a little bit skittish. I know some folks, especially uh, folks who do work like you do, sometimes get a little skittish about sacramentality as this thing that can sort of bleed, right? And it's like, oh, well, everything's a sacrament. I, I don't mean that. Do, do you think it's fair to say, though, that it is, there's something like this Christian, this, this incarnational conviction about the capacity and possibility of matter that would make sense then of why the church would sort of commission and support and nourish a people who work on reworking matter to make art and artifice as a means of encounter. That, that's kind of, I don't know if that's sustainable as a historical argument or not. I'm not an art historian, but... Um, it seems to me that you need, because otherwise Gnostic versions of Christianity never did this, right? They never sort of seem to underwrite it. So I, I don't want to overclaim for the historical part of it, but I, I think you're right that I don't want to say, I'm not saying the arts could replace 
the sacraments. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. But you can see how, for example, imagine I'm, a, I'm a, a Christian artist. I actually think one of the best investments I could make for my imagination would be to give myself over to the sacramental presence of the Spirit in the embodied practices of Christian worship as its own imagination station that's expanding my capacity and what I can imagine for the world. Not because I'm then going to take a verse and put it on the painting or something, but because there's a sort of a formative possibility that comes from being embedded uh, in, in that story. So I, I think that's right that we don't want to... You're saying let's not blur the line here too much between sacrament and sacramentality. Or just to enter the word potential to be. Like, yes. So yeah, it yeah, gives yeah. it a little bit of nuance. Because yes, yes. then I think that allows some of the yes. other factors to yes, come in. Yeah. And that's, so then that's yeah. the second part of your question, which is, okay, to what extent does um, encountering a Van Gogh and having an experience like Julian Bell describes, how mu- did that happen to everybody who walked through the tape? Clearly not, right? Um, uh, but I'm always... So, so part of me thinks that there's sort of hermeneutic conditions on the side of reception that have to prime you to even receive the gift in this way. This is actually where I disagree with Jean-Luc Marion. However, do you think that somebody could be surprised in such an encounter, right? And in in a way, a little bit like faith itself is a gift, I I sometimes think that it's possible that God could be giving an unexpected and unasked for capacity for such an encounter. But I think you're right. There has to be sort of, there's conditions on the receiver side of the encounter, um, a, a kind of attention maybe that's, that's necessary. And the condition maybe even is one of, it's a, a strange thing to try and conceptualize, but it might be a condition of, um, of readiness to be surprised yes, so how yes, do you cultivate yes. that kind of readiness which really fascinates me yes um there's a kind of mentality of uh expectation without over specifying what it is you're expecting that i think it, it, it makes great sense to me in terms of how faith might be lived mm. but it's also a great attitude to go into an art gallery with or a and concert. It, it relates to what you were saying earlier on about the the fleeting nature of the image in yeah. In contemporary yeah. life, the fact that we, you know, we scroll through images so quickly, we never give any attention to them. There's something about the, the willingness to stop and look at something over a long period of time, which you kind of do a bit in an art gallery if, you're, if, you, if you do it properly. You can, you can skip through it pretty yes. quickly and yes. just run through the rooms yes. and yes. see everything a bit like you can on yes. Instagram. But, but to sort of stop in front of a painting is a little bit like the kind of attentiveness you need for prayer. Yes, it's um, contemplative, right? Yeah, exactly. But the way Ben puts it makes me wonder... Um, curation now becomes a very, very interesting act that could create the affordances for such a possibility, right? So again, you can always, yeah. if somebody wants to skate through and if there's, you know, third graders who are bringing, coming on a bus trip, but I could imagine a kind of curation that's actually working to create a little more friction for people for the pause, for the contemplation, Yeah. And I think this is where the sacramental can become potential because that's Mm. what that cultivates Mm. is that Mm. expectation that when you come to that which is physical, that capacity is there for the the divine to be mediated. Um, Whereas other traditions within Christianity wouldn't hold that expectation. Right. And so then then you're always going to run against the flat surface or you're, well, not always, but you're going to have that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, 
I also wonder how much I'm I'm assuming here, but have not made explicit. In uh, so I come from the Reformed tradition, and we talk about a notion of common grace. That is, that the Spirit's activity is not restricted to the sacraments or even the sanctuary, right? That there's a kind of activity of the Spirit that spills over and beyond, and and I can be encountered by uh, um, the Spirit in all these spaces, and that would speak to. Uh, that the sort of possibility that you're talking. So there's a pneumatology at stake here. Yeah, yeah. I, I have an Orthodox f- friend who mm. I think unfairly makes a distinction between Eastern and Western Christian art on the basis that Eastern Orthodox art, as he puts it, creates mediating images, visual images, and Western art depi- simply depicts or tells stories mm. through images. Mm. Uh, the reason I, I, there are lots of reasons I think that's not fair because I think at some level all... Both Western and Eastern art are mediating images, and the the ways in which they communicate encounter are, are fundamental to each. An Orthodox icon, as you were talking about, the sense of the intersection of the gazes, it brings us into the presence of the the one we're mm. encountering. They are hyperstatic images. They are they are images that make the person present, and um, you're seeing them in their heavenly. Reality: The saints or, or Christ are presented to us through icons in, in the life they have, mm. and you're in the presence of a living, holy mm. one. And um, so there's a very obvious way in which they're mediating. But Western images, um, even in telling us stories, um, but perhaps even more in the way that they're using matter to um, heighten our attention to, as you were saying, Graham, and heighten our awareness of the fact that matter itself is communication of God and our encounters with the material world are forms of presence to God and of God's presence to us. They're eloquent if we yes. are attuned to mm. them. Mm. Um, to say that any, any object created, f- you know, with that, with that uh, awareness that the material world is God's speech is not a mediating image it seems to me to have failed to see something profound about the making of art. Yeah, 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 very good. Mm. Just to, um, <laughs> amen. <laughs> no more than amen. It's very good. Uh, uh, so just to pick up one of the other themes that you were talking about in your lecture, this um, this idea of uh, the the Christ, that the eschatological vision of the world gives you the possibility to name evil and and yet at the same time hold hope. That mix of lament and hope. That um, and I think you had a phrase towards the end that you know lament. Um, on its own is just anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, hope on its own is just a lie. It's yeah. an illusion. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, Ben and Sarah, I mean, you know, you both spent a lot of your time thinking about sort of art and the relationship between theology and art. And do you think that captures something that's specifically different about Christian, about um, about the way in which a sort of theological view of the world enables you to do a different kind of art than that? Would you think of, of examples of art you know of that that, that capture that? Kind of dynamic between lament and hope. I was surprised. I, I wrote a piece during Lent this year for Ooh. a series of talks in in a church in South London on art, the art of the fall. It was called, yeah. and the the work of art I chose to work with was Anse- a work by Anselm Kiefer, a German artist who who's religiously interested, but not committed to certainly not particularly to Christianity and probably would be cautious about any kind of 
strong religious conviction. In fact, in some ways, your Julian Barnes opening example really would, would mm. in a way, capture, capture some of his, mm -hmm. his approach. Mm. But the, the piece uh, that I worked with or wrote about for that was called Ashflower, and it's a very disturbing image, as with a lot of Kiefer's work, which reflects on the Nazi past of his country. And this is somebody who was born at the end of the Second World War and grew up surrounded by the unspoken legacy of what had happened. Nobody talked about it. And he decided he would use, amongst other things, use his art to address it face on. And it's an image of an empty, um, um, huge empty hall uh, in which the Nazis once met. Um, and it, it, it's made partly out of ash mm. itself. Mm. So the material he's mm. used Gosh. to create it is ash mixed with you know, with the kinds of things will enable it to stick to his canvas. It's massive, and um, over the top of it, he's laid a, a dried sunflower, which is laid on top of the image, and it projects above and beneath the actual... Whoa. The frame of the canvas is broken by the sunflower. Whoa. Now, that, to me, although this is not the work of a Christian artist, is a brilliant example of how lament is overlaid with just something that mm -hmm. suggests there's a light that could be striven for. The sunflower is defined by its striving for the light. It's a dead sunflower, mm. so wow. he's not letting you... He does not allow eschatology mm -hmm. to be a narcotic. Mm -hmm. mm. He said in an interview, no eschaton. But he puts this sunflower over this ashen image with all the connotations that has in the context of Europe's 20th century history, wow. and he just leaves it there. And the, the really interesting thing to me is the sunflower is not quite of the space that he's depicted. It's of another. It's, it's as it were, in our space. Mm. He doesn't reduce it to within the picture. It's on the picture. So he suggests, in some way, perhaps, another world or another reality. Yeah. Now, so I suppose I'm saying that there isn't, it's not only Christians who can mm -hmm. strive, at least, for this balance. Mm -hmm. And that I felt I had learned something as a Christian from, from that work. Mm -hmm. Can you put me a popular culture example? Um, the one that comes to mind is Blue Planet 2. Because I think in Blue Planet 2, a documentary by David Attenborough has led our country in a national lament for the ecological crisis and what we've done mm. to the beauty of the oceans. And what you have in that documentary is stunning beauty and stunning cinematography alongside devastation of what human activity has done and but yet it's not just devastation it's also the remnants of beauty that remain mm. in this created mm. world that we have and and so there is something about that that in enacting and in showing us that beauty it has enacted I think a hope that things can be other than just the series of images of devastation that we're looking at yeah wow so it's, mm. and I think then because it's been broadcast so widely, it's been seen as this watershed moment for the UK. And you have bottom-up change yeah. happening um, rather than top-down yeah. kind of regulation. Yeah. So again, David Attenborough is, to my knowledge, I think he's an atheist. I don't think this has come mm -hmm. from, mm -hmm. um, or he's not, a, he's not a religious person, so I don't think this has come from a place of wanting to change um, necessarily um, the behavior, but it's just coming from making a follow-up to Blue Planet, seeing what he's seen as mm. we've seen it, we've responded. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm equally intrigued by, uh, 
I'm enough of a Hegelian that I'm equally intrigued at the way a Christian eschatology just gets sort of tacitly implanted in a Western imaginary so that artists almost um, unintentionally or, or certainly tacitly end up drawing on the capital of what really is an eschatological vision and in a way don't have a right to. If you ask them their confession, it doesn't work, and yet you can see that their art wants it and needs it. I, I think that's a really, really interesting... And, and I'm not going to go around and saying, oh, you can't make art like that because you don't confess uh, the kingdom's coming. I, instead, I want to start a conversation and say, if you're, if you're Paul... Uh, at Areopagus uh, at Mars Hill and you get now you get dropped into the museum where that piece of work is you say I see you're a very religious person <laughs> Do you, like I, I, or I, I see you have a, hung, a hunger and a hope and a longing can we talk about what nourishes that what what supports that Th this is why I really think again I don't want to instrumentalize art but I do think it's a it's a really intriguing moment in in western cultures like the UK and, and the States even, where you're starting to see some of these cracks in, in the secular that open maybe more opportunities for conversation along those lines. And I'm intrigued in those two examples of the way in which it go, the, the hope goes so far but doesn't quite go beyond it. I mean, your example, Ben, of the, the sunflower, which is a sunflower but it's a dead sunflower. Your example, Sarah, of Blue Planet, which has extraordinary beauty of the natural world and, and yet ends so with this story of devastation that we have wreaked upon the world and that sort of, you know, can we turn this around? There's a little bit of possible hope, but a bit of despair in there as well. And it can't quite get to that other stage, the, the, the fullness of hope as well as the fullness of lament. And maybe we're in a, a cultural moment that is very strongly embraces lament, but can't yeah. quite get to hope. Yes. And I suppose there is a problem in that because it is quite hard to imagine the new heavens and the new earth and how you depict that. Um, whether you're a Christian or not. Um, and I, I don't know Most if you know attempts are terrible. Aren't yeah, that's right. Oh, Visualizations. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know of ones that have worked well with that. I mean, I'm, um, uh, I mean the only thing I, I can think of is we have a, a work downstairs in one of the rooms down here in St. Melitus. If you take a moment, you can go look at it by uh, the artist Roger Wagner, where he, mm. he depicts, and his normal work is to depict a whole series of scenes, but it's lit in a, in a kind of remarkable way that the light in the painting, brings out the colors, it's a freshness, it's a, it's a brightness in the light that comes from another space. It's not just normal, normal sunlight, it's something more than that. And that gives you a little taste of this world transfigured by another light from another realm altogether. It's maybe a little taste of something like that. And he is a Christian artist who's trying to depict that kind of thing. But I don't know if there's other, other examples you can think of that do that well, or is it all just... He's asking the hard question. For examples uh, on, off the top of our head is, is the hardest kind of yeah, question. No, 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 but I mean, I, I think you're right. My, my hunch is, I, I think this was what Ben was hinting at too, was probably the best kind of art that would embody a foretaste of what we actually hope for in the coming kingdom is not going to be depictive, <laughs> but it's going to be a, an an encapsulation of a kind of experience where things are put to rights and you say this is the way it's supposed to be right and it could be fleeting could be a, a flash of a kind of friendship that is like oh this is everything I've ever longed for in the fullness of reciprocity and mutuality in a friendship and you see it or it could be a table and a meal I do think you know 
Babette's feast would be kind of cliche uh, in this context, but uh, um, yeah, there's ways in which you can see artists trying to sort of give us that flash of where you say it was good to have been here, and that's that's what we're sort of and just enough to maybe tease you to hunger for more of it. We've got some uh, fascinating questions that have come in from the audience as well. So if I can lob a few of these your wow. way, and it's open to anyone to have a go at answering them. Um, the first one, I guess, maybe. Um, Triggered by your comments on Van Gogh or Van okay. Gogh, or whatever you call it. Van Gogh. <laughs> That's um, how the Dutch say it. And uh, the question is this Great art is often born from deeply anguished lives. What, what do we do theologically with this perception of reality that springs from what we might also want to name as the evil of suffering? And what do we do with that? The idea that so often the art, great art, such as the art of Van Gogh, does come from. Um, from something that is deeply full of pain. I, I want to hear Ben on this. I'll, I'll just say one thing that comes to mind, which is, um, by the way, this also makes me think of the witness of Pope John Paul II, for whom, uh, I, who I think was a, such a powerful um, bearer of suffering as a Christian discipline, in a way. But it, it strikes me that one of the reasons maybe art comes from such suffering is because um, suffering... Um, purges a lot of illusions about ourselves and about the world. Do you know what I mean? Like it just it just drops uh, the charade, charade, charade of of uh, um, the things that you take for granted. And so the the humming along, banal, you know, taken for granted, going to the to work. Um, Suffering demolishes that, and, and then those who suffer see what many of us don't see. Uh, and to then for us to attend to them and be attuned to them. I, 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 that's not the same as fetishizing suffering. I, I think it's actually just a function of what it does for one's capacity to perceive. Uh, it doesn't, ascent, doesn't necessarily turn into artistic gift. Uh, right, so we, we don't want just sort of like, oh, this must be art because you suffered. But the, it, that partly explains it. I'm sure you have a better no, I think, that's, uh, I think that's a fantastic answer. And I would, I guess, I, I think Van Gogh is the most incredible artist. And I think in many cases, exactly as you say, the, the purgation involved through mm. suff, suff, the experience of suffering can be a, a doorway into creativity. But I would always want to say, uh, I think we also have a danger in our contemporary culture. We have an idea of the artist as valorized by yeah. the level of their yes. angst. Or, yes. and, and I think that's wrong too. And I would always want to set against a Van Gogh someone like a Mozart, who, who Karl Barth, the great 20th mm -hmm. century theologian, described as epitomized by this ebullient hilaritas, he used this Latin mm. word, where, which is maybe another way than suffering to the same degree of liberation where he, he also was added, were unfettered by mm. certain mm. kinds of um, constraint or anxiety. And, but for him, it was in this sort of joyful spirit that enabled him to create compositions that That's are just stunning. And maybe in the world of art, art history and within a more British context, Stanley Spencer, the painter, mm. he wasn't a particularly anxiety-ridden, tortured artist, but creates the most beautiful mm -hmm. works of art. So, so I think um, the way I would... As, you, as you, I think you've already indicated, the way I'd want to think about it is that there is no suffering that couldn't in principle be turned to creativity. This is the lesson of someone like Van Gogh. Um, but it doesn't only have to be through 
suffering. There are many ways in which this, this freedom can be discovered. Mm. Mm. I think I'd, I'd want to add as well that it's important and to not abstract works of art from the artist who create them. So um, artists, I mean, in some ways, creation can be an act of sacrifice, even if it's not an act of suffering. And so it's, I, w I was thinking about this actually when you were showing your images of these um, these uh, works of lament that came from a place of suffering. And it's in what does care for the artist look like when their mm. personal lament is becoming a conduit for our corporate lament? And, and how do you mm. help to care for the artist in that? Um, because their gift of their lament, which they're giving to us, is not coming without cost to them. Yeah. So that brings in the question of, you know, what does it look like for the church to support the yeah. artist, not just you know, with money, but also with care and concern and community. That's very well. good. And another question here, which um, uh, goes on to another area that I guess you, you raised a little bit in your, your talk, James, Jamie. Um, what, what does incarnational humanism look like on Instagram? Uh, or, is, or is that fundamentally impossible in, in this media? Because I guess the, behind the question is, is our talk of the kind of art we've been speaking about today uh, risking a, a, a kind of fault line between high culture, low culture. Uh, how does that work? Uh, is this possible in you know, in the fleeting image world of social media, the internet, browse all the time? Yeah, I mean that's a very fair question. I, I, I'm not. I have zero stake in actually uh, a trenching criticism of high-low sorts of distinctions. Um, you do tweet a fair bit yourself. <laughs> yeah. Right. That said, I think it, it is fair to be attentive to the spaces that are curated for an encounter with art. So Instagram is a mode of curation and encounter with images for the most part, overwhelming. So then we just have to ask ourselves, the same way we were talking about curation earlier, okay, well, what sort of encounter is afforded by this mode? I, I'm, not, I'm not here to demonize Instagram per se. I just don't have a good argument for the redemption of it for the kind of artistic encounter I'm talking about here, but I don't, I don't rule that out. And somebody could absolutely um, articulate that. In the same way, by the way, there are all kinds of muse museums that are also not conducive <laughs> uh, to this sort of... Uh, um, the, the more kind of soul-digging, contemplative kind of encounter. The other thing I'm worried about, too, is... I, you know, this is one slice of way of thinking about the arts. Um, uh, I think laughter, uh, comedy, delight, play. I actually think play is at the heart of the arts. And so there can be another kind of play and delight that perhaps is bouncing through an Instagram sort of experience that I don't want to, to rule out. Uh, so I don't, I'm not here to demonize. Uh, just complicate, perhaps, yeah. And it may, may be that the... The problem is not so much, you know, that there's something about the image that doesn't make doesn't work on Instagram. It's just that the sheer pace at which you have to access it, almost by definition, you don't dwell on an Instagram post. You tend to kind of get yeah. through to the next yeah. one. Yeah, and I suppose that a relax. user could discipline themselves and say, yeah. "I will spend 35 seconds with every image and an intent to. I will give you my attention." Like, um, but it's not like we say the curation of it does not encourage that. Right. And encourage the kind of attentiveness that, that yeah, is required right, for this right, kind right. of 
transformation. So much of this, this is, relates to something I said earlier too about you know, on the receiver side, I think something you mentioned, Graham. In, in some ways, what we're really talking about is how do we cultivate the capacity for attending? And um, that, that's its own set of challenges, without question. And there's another one here about, um, it raises, I guess, a, a common question around the arts. This is about, this is saying Romans 10, 14, 15, and many other passages of scripture and Christian tradition seem to elevate speech or hearing as the means to make sense of the material. Uh, are pictures without words just collapsing revelation into fallen creation? Is the problem with elevating art to this extent that we, that ties subjectivity? So I guess there's a question there about the word and the image. And I suppose particularly within um, the reformed tradition of which you're uh, an inheritor. Yeah, we're not huge. Yeah, yeah, the, the suspicion of the image. Second commandment gets big play in the reformed tradition. Yes, right. that yeah, is true. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though I'm curious in the question, I mean, it's, it's a little bit curious to, uh, if, if attending to the visual is, what was it, capitulating to the fallen creation? Uh, yeah, collapsing revelation into fallen creation. Because I'm pretty sure speech participates in the same yeah. fall in creation. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's true. Um, I, I'm less exuberant about the, that particular Protestant fixation on preached word. Um, but uh, I would say even words are artistic. <laughs> you know, like the poetry of the Bible is, of course, inherently artistic. And scripture also talks about Christ as the image of the invisible God. So there's, I, I just think all of this is inherited in the tradition. I don't want to deny the complicatedness of it, but I, it seems to me we can redeem all of these things. And God uses all of these things. I mean, the very fact that, that uh, um, we are given bread and wine and, and a cup is held, um, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood, that is... An allegorical, well, no, it's not allegorical. It's, it's, um, but, I mean, you can see how that involves a kind of play that is artistic, that's aesthetic, uh, that's, that there's something going on there, and that is something that Christ himself gave us. And I, I think it's inhabiting the way uh, um, that play works that's at the heart of the arts in some ways. You, you I'm sure. I, I agree. There's an interesting People. possibility I've heard explored in... in uh, interdisciplinary conversations uh, between art historians and, and uh, in this case, actually particularly uh, someone who works in classics and, and the ancient Greek world and is interested in visual art of the classical world, that, that the discipline, the academic discipline of art history is very Protestant because it, what it tends to do in talking about art is turn it back to text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that actually art history would be even more mm. wonderful. I love art history, but it would be even more wonderful and even more exciting if it stopped trying to turn everything back into text. Mm. What that would look mm. like, how you would study it, is a really mm. interesting question. But we should be exploring that, I think, because um, there are things that aren't. And, and there, there is, a, a, it's the sad truth that a lot of people who went into the study of art history because they loved, the, they loved looking at the art were told when they started studying it, just kind of set aside the desire <laughs> because that will kind of that will interfere with your mm. ability to analyze this and re represent it textually mm. Mm. and so let's get the desire back in i think mm. yes amen yeah yeah and uh, i mean in a few minutes just to give sarah and ben a little bit of warning i'm just gonna ask you to give your 
sort of your final words you'd want to say to Jamie in response to his lecture tonight. But um, just, just one or two questions before we get to that point, just give you time to think. Um, uh, the theme of tonight and the, this series is, is generous orthodoxy. And uh, Jamie, in your lecture, you, you, um, you explored this really interesting idea of, of, of orthodoxy as not as generous, but generative. Um, it's capacious, it, it, it gives. It's a, it is a generous orthodoxy in, in that sense. And I suppose very often in, in the modern world where we think of that word orthodoxy, it sounds mm. restrictive, it sounds, you know, um, it narrows your view of the world. Uh, and yet what you've been talking about tonight is, is a different kind of orthodoxy. Uh, orthodoxy which is not, you know, a sort of um, vague, limitless, boundaryless, shapeless orthodoxy which goes anywhere, but, a, but, but a, a robust orthodoxy, something that focuses upon the, you know, the language of Nicaea and so on, but in its very nature is generous, generative and so on. Uh, let me say a little bit more about that and what you... Yeah, I hope that I made sense. See I mean, what, see what the others respond to it, to that idea as well. Um, uh, Alexander Shmeman, Orthodox theologian, has this marvelous little book called "For the Life of the World." Right, and in a way, what I was imagining, my angle into your theme was, I, I, I think the best gift we could give our neighbors uh, is actually to dive deep into the thick specificity of what we believe as Christians as narrated to us in the creeds as summarized to us for us in the creeds and then start realizing this is this is remarkable this is fantastic this is this is Stanley Kubrick do you know like the, but it's true and and um, and to realize that in a sense to dive deep into this orthodoxy this now isn't just a boundary marking dogmatism it is a life giving imagination generating understanding of the cosmos and ourselves within it which I think can just be this feast in the marketplace of ideas today I, I, I actually I, so I'm, I'm, I'm I just think that Christians should be unabashedly present faithfully present in the marketplace of ideas in museums in universities coming with a thick specificity of the remarkable things that, that we know in Christ, but then also showing why that is precisely what human hearts long for. It's, it, this, this notion that Christianity is the true and most fulsome humanism, um, I, I think um, we, we've retreated to a kind of apologetic stance or a merely dogmatic stance, or we've confused what really matters about orthodoxy and focused on all kinds of other moralistic sorts of things. And we, we leave, like for instance, I would love it if our neighbors hear the phrase Christian orthodoxy and think eschatology. I, I don't think that that's the case at all. Uh, so I, I would love to just transform what, they, what my neighbors think it means to be a Christian. And to realize that for me, it's not stepping into a narrow room. It's actually stepping into this mansion that is that is has room for all of them too. Ben, Sarah, any observations on that phrase, generous orthodoxy, and what it, and how it relates to the themes of what we've been speaking about tonight? The generative orthodoxy—it's a view of the world that makes it seem bigger, not smaller. Mm. And what struck me in what you were saying is that what you're calling us to is not just um, that those outside of the church have a, um, are in inspired by what it means to be Christian, but that we're inspired yeah. by what yes, it means right. to be Christian. Right, yes. Because um, 
and I, and I suppose that relates to a lot of your other work, mm. is this idea that we've, we've focused on the mind and what we believe and we've forgotten about the heart and what we desire. And, um, and that almost the failure of the imagination of us to cultivate the imagination um, is yeah. a big task ahead of us, um, but with a huge amount of potential, um, which will, um, will require the breaking down of a lot of the divides that we have, not just within the church, but within the academy mm -hmm. and with all these things that have told us these these narrow boundaries or narrow um, categories are the only places you can go. Yeah. What happens when we stretch into places we haven't been before? So um, it's a really inspiring and, and visionary um, task that we have ahead of us, but one that's going to probably take a while to unpick. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But, but hopefully also gives new life to a so-called post-Christian generation. Yeah, Do you yeah, know what I mean? Imagine if the future of Christianity was still before it. Yeah. Right, and that, that's the kind of, yeah, thank you for, for saying it that way, it's beautiful. Uh, I, I, I found, hearing your talk, I, I was brought back again with, with wonder to the realization that the, the, the transcendence that you talked about and the, the sunsets that you might watch, um, which are very much part of the language that many people beyond Christianity will use about how they understand mm -hmm. spiritual reality. It's, great horizons um, uh, is from a Christian point of view at the same time deeply particular so the goodness of finitude and and for me that's that's a reminder that the capacious generosity that embraces all things is at the same time mm. is not mm. incompatible with the deeply particular one of my favorite paintings is uh, by Giovanni Bellini and it's a picture of Christ oddly between crucifixion and resurrection so he's risen but uh, still bearing the crown of thorns mm. and he's wearing a white robe in which there's a slit and through the slit you see another slit which is the slit in his flesh just below his breast actually and Bellini's placed it so high it almost looks like it's a shadow beneath a nurturing mm. breast and you get the sense of an infinity in the incredibly particular because this particular person is offering through this particular portal in his garment access through the further very particular wound in his side to the source of all being, which is infinite. And, yeah. and you, f mm. you will be nurtured from this mm. particularity. So it's the generosity of the particular that yeah. came Fantastic. out from, from what you said. Yeah. And, and oh, beautiful, beautiful. And that um, idea of our, our need for both universal, the capacious, but also the very specifically particular. You may have something to say to us about Brexit as well. <laughs> <laughs> we almost we avoided both. it. We it was almost avoided so it. close. We can't, we can't get away from it here. But I think it's part of the answer. Anyway, that's not a whole other question. Um, Jamie, thank you so much. Thank you for very much. You've, given us tonight. you've uh, expanded you our both. sort of imaginations just with some of the art that you've been, you've uh, enabled us to see with new eyes um, as we've looked at that and to your, uh, the ways in which you've opened up the nature of, um, of orthodoxy, this generous, generative uh, orthodoxy that's um, given us a new vision of that and that sort of sense of, 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 um, of lament and hope, this interaction with time has been a really, um, really mm. generative idea for Great. us as well, giving us a lot to think about, a lot to, uh, to take home. Uh, as well, and um, uh, Jamie's latest night is new material. I'm told this is the first time. New right. fresh so, manna, as we say in the Pentecostal are, Church. Um, uh, we are privileged to, to hear it. So can we give Jamie a very thank you, thanks, thanks to you both. Appreciate it. Thank you.
that was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.